here and you're listening to chain reaction all about supply chain advantage great you could drop by today when it comes to managing the interface between technology and humans that's always a very tricky task for most organizations forecasting has been a human activity for so long and we think we're good at it but are we really computers can handle numbers much faster than people, and of course, artificial intelligence can help with the process of performing prediction, and it can exclude bias. But it does come down to what the humans do when they set up the forecast in the first place, and what goes into a forecast. And of course, super forecast, or super forecasters, was the subject of a book by Philip Tetlock and Dan Gardner. It's called The Art and Science of Prediction. And I want to talk a little bit about super forecasting in relation to supply chains today, and also how artificial intelligence will change the nature of forecasts in future. Of course, that's not to say it's not being used presently, because of course it is. And you may recall that uh, Dominic Cummings, who was advisor to Boris Johnson when he was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, was a big fan The idea behind super forecasting is that some people are naturally better at making predictions than other people, even experts in the field. And it might include anything from will a currency become stronger, will one country invade another, or will there be civil unrest in a city, or simply about what tomorrow's weather will look like. Philip Tetlock came up with something called the Good Judgment Project, which was part of a US government competition to find better ways of prediction. And he examined thousands of predictions by experts and found they were no better than if they'd been selected outcomes at random. And he compared this to chimps throwing darts at a board. He then asked thousands of people to come up with figures for the chances of a range of particular things happening. For example, nuclear tests in North Korea in the next three months. And then he looked at the most successful of the forecasters, and found they continued to make better predictions right through the questions that they were asked over a period of time. And they even made better forecasts than those that had access to privileged data. So how does that happen? Well, he called them super forecasters, and they calculate probability of something happening and adjust circumstances as they change. A bit like Bayes' theorem, isn't it, really? Bayes, you remember is kind of looking at posterior and current probabilities and making adjustments as conditions change. One of the examples given was North Korea looking at making nuclear tests. And on average, those tests were conducted every 30 months, which suggested about a 10% chance of a test in the next three months. The figure was then doubled to 20% because North Korea had been threatening to conduct tests. So that's the idea of new information coming along and changing the forecast. And what super forecasters 
are particularly good at doing is keeping personal opinions out of the calculations. So it's a very rational process. So how successful is it? Well, you could look at something like Brexit. Was it widely predicted? Or the election of Donald Trump as President of the United States? Super forecasts did not actually accurately predict Brexit. They put the Leave vote at 23% in 2016, in the June of 2016, which was the month of the referendum, so Bloomberg said. And their predicted figure had been higher a few months previously, but they adjusted it downwards as they got closer to the referendum day. But super forecasters did predict collectively Donald Trump's success in the primaries in 2016, which is the first hurdle in the presidential race. So these ideas are used in all kinds of different settings. A CIA analyst wrote a paper calling for the US intelligence service to look for characteristics of super forecasters when recruiting, rather than looking at applicants' grades. And that's the point, I think, that Dominic Cummings was making when he was saying that they should recruit people of wider diversity for political appointments. He famously told journalists to go and read Philip Tetlock's super forecasters instead of asking political pundits, who Cummings said don't know what they're talking about. When Tetlock was looking at uh, the characteristics of these super forecasters, all that super means, by the way, is above average in this context. So these people making above average forecasts, he said had particular traits. And amongst those was high IQ, knowledge of the political environment, they were open-minded, and they had good cognitive skills. So I think those were the traits that he characterised as representing a super forecaster. And I think that's important. I think the open-mindedness, not having any prejudice in the way in which a forecast is conducted, not having a political motivation, is an important issue. And another key finding was that people making these forecasts these super forecasts, better than average forecasts, were usually better at inductive reasoning, pattern detection, they had cognitive flexibility, and of course they were open-minded. So you can remember various philosophers talking about open-mindedness in bracketing ideas, when Edmund Husserl was talking about the horizons of experience in phenomenology, that's one of the things he talked about, but I thought the inductive reasoning aspect was quite telling because inductive reasoning is important to, of course, gather the data and make sense of that data in the context of a forecast. And sometimes forecasts can be statistically accurate, but of course they might not be accurate in forecasting terms because they ignore certain types of data. And I think that's one of the things that super forecasters don't do. They don't ignore the qualitative data that might be important to the decision as it arises. In May 2016, an article appeared in the Harvard Business Review by Shoemaker, who's a professor at the Wharton School, and Tetlock, who's at the University of Pennsylvania. And it was about improving the judgment of decisions in organizations. It was about managing for an unpredictable future. And it began with a statement. It said, imagine you could dramatically improve your firm's forecasting ability, but to do so, you have to expose just how unreliable its predictions and the people making them really are. And this was the start of the project. 
The Good Judgment Project began in 2011, when Tetlock teamed up with Barbara Mellors of the Walton School to launch The Good Judgment Project. Their goal was to determine whether some people were naturally better than others at prediction. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because we all know people who appear to make better predictions than others. And we've worked with people in organisations that appear to be able to see into the future better than others. Now, what makes them better? Are they having access to better data? Or is it something in the person that just happens to give them the ability to make better decisions on the basis of the same data we might give to somebody else who makes really poor decisions? And that appears to be the case with these super forecasters. The problem, of course, is that organisations and individuals are generally poor at judging the likelihood of uncertain events. And predictions are often coloured by the forecasters' cognitive biases or their desire to influence others or concerns about reputation. And it can have serious consequences. So these biases, somehow, in the super forecasters, don't appear to be as strong the more open-minded. 25,000 forecasters and a million predictions were reviewed by the authors. And they looked at the practices and how to improve those practices through training, including basic statistics and awareness of bias and debates amongst forecasting teams. The idea was to improve prediction capability and companies need to keep real-time accounts of the top teams that make better judgments. Now let's just revisit the traits because this is where traits were first discussed in this Harvard Business Review article. And it really is quite interesting because it was broken down into philosophical approaches and outlook, abilities and thinking style, methods of forecasting and the work ethic. And apparently super forecasters are cautious. They understand that few things are certain. They're humble. They appreciate the limits of forecasting and the non-deterministic. They don't assume what happens is meant to be. Their abilities and thinking style, they're open-minded. They see beliefs as hypotheses to be tested. They're inquiring of mind, intellectually curious and enjoy mental challenges. They're reflective and self-critical. And they're numerate. They're very comfortable with numbers. When it comes to method of forecasting, they're pragmatic. They're not wedded to any one idea or agenda. They're analytical in their approach. They consider other views. So that's the open-mindedness again. They synthesize the blend of diverse views into their own. They're probability-focused. They judge the probability of events, not as certain or uncertain. That's the deterministic thing again. But as more or less likely. The thoughtful updaters, they change their minds when new facts emerge. They're aware of their cognitive and emotional biases. And the work ethic they're keen on improving, they strive to do things better, and they're tenacious. They stick at something until the problem is solved. Now, another interesting aspect of the Harvard Business Review article talked about three phases of forecasting. And they talk about diverging views, evaluation of the views that have been put forward, and arriving at a convergent phase. The divergent phase is where the issues and assumptions and approaches to finding an answer are examined by the teams from many different angles. The evaluation phase is when it's time for productive disagreement and arguments abound, 
and the convergent phase is when the teams begin to settle on prediction. Learning and progress are fastest when the questions are focused and the feedback is frequent. Now, I think that's important, isn't it, in terms of the thinking about forecasts. Yeah, there's going to be lots of different forecasts in the pot. They have to be critically evaluated and there's discussion about why the forecast is like it is. And then you have to come to a conclusion where things converge. And the other interesting test that was done in this study was using something called a BRIA score to reveal your best and worst predictions. So forecasters make precise estimates of probability. For example, there's a 80% chance that there's going to be a major recession this year. And the prediction can then be analysed against the outcome. And the BRIA scores calculate a result, a statistic, by squaring the difference between a probability prediction and the actual outcome. Scored as 1 if the event happens and 0 if it doesn't. So if you assigned an 80% probability, 80% confident that something's going to happen, it would simply be 0.8 minus 1 squared. If the firm missed the target, the score changes. It becomes 0.8 minus 0. In other words, 0.8 becomes 64. So 88 to 64, and that's 0.64. The closer to 0 that the score becomes, the smaller the forecasting error, and the better is the prediction. And that's what the BRIA scoring method is. And that's how you find who are the super forecasters, who gives the better prediction. So you could apply this inside an organisation. You could get a number of teams competing to give predictions and you could see how they measure up using this BRIA statistic. And you could probably, if you wish to, select a team to give the forecast or you could place more reliability on the team with the lowest BRIA statistic, the ones closer to zero where they give better predictions. Now, you could think of many applications of this inside an organisation and in your business decision making. You could use it to forecast what the environment's going to look like for your business in 12 months or three years time. And you could have teams look at all the variables that they consider impact that decision. And so they would do an environmental audit, for example, and you'd give probabilities or assign probabilities to each of the outcomes that you think might happen. You could also, within a supply chain, you could look at sales forecasts and predict what that's going to look like, or you could look at what impact geopolitical tensions are going to have on your supply chain, and similarly, produce forecasts. Now, these forecasts would be quite a resource for the business, and over time, you would be able to see how accurate or otherwise your forecasts were, and you might get better at your decision-making as a consequence of going through the exercise. So you can see there are many different applications. So my question to you is, do you have super forecasters in your organisation? Well, you probably have, but do they know it? Probably not. Now, if we extend the idea of super forecasting and we consider artificial intelligence and how that can be used to improve forecasting and possibly machine learning where machines can learn to forecast better, perhaps through the various inputs and the algorithms that are developed for the artificial intelligence, for the AI system, that might actually 
take super forecasting to the next level. Now, an interesting book on this topic was by A.J. Agrawal, Joshua Kenz, and Avi Goldfarb, and it's published by Harvard Business Review Press in 2022. It's called The Power and Prediction. In 2018, prediction machines by the same authors wanted to dispel the myth and hype around AI by reframing its power and potential to drop the cost of making predictions. Now, if you can lower the cost of forecasting, that helps too, doesn't it? In the new book, Power and Prediction, the authors, who are three economists from the Rotman School of Management, address some gaps in the original thinking, and they offer new insights exploring how organisations have adopted AI technologies across different industries. While they remain true to the idea that AI creates value through improved decision-making, it's become clear that effective AI adoption and real transformation is dependent on the creation of new systems driven by the technology. But crucially, they remind the reader that decision-making involves prediction and judgment, an instinctive two-part mental process that we don't always differentiate. Machine learning and AI technologies shift the prediction part from humans to machines, which increases the speed and accuracy of prediction. But for the judgment part, organizations need to create or redesign systems independent of the first part, and that takes time. The authors introduce a number of concepts that need to be considered. They talk about the between times, the current uncertainties start to AI adoption and lack of appreciation of the effect of the larger system in which AI operates. That will pass and adoption will accelerate. They talk about the AI bullwhip, some change in one area brought by AI-driven decisions in another, and that might open up cracks or unintended consequences elsewhere in the system. And then they talk about power and disruption. AI only has power as it leads to better decisions. Humans still in control of the decision-making, and that's important to note. And it's wrong to think that AI holds the power. It doesn't. Humans remain in control. And value creation happens through this human-machine interface. And bias and discrimination, they talk about. It's often suggested that AI can perpetuate bias. But these authors argue that AI can detect bias and adjust for it. So, interesting read if you have time. It doesn't take much of a leap to see how AI and forecasting and these developments will be very influential in supply chains and in the management of those supply chains, including procurement, manufacturing, distribution, inventory, last mile delivery, all the logistics aspects, shipping arrangements, and data and insights from the data are central to how we view the world in which we operate. And it will change customer expectations too. Customers will be having experience of AI as they do now without actually knowing about it. But what they do know is that faster delivery, improved information, improved visibility, improved transparency between partners in supply chains and those aspects of the supply chain can change dramatically as a consequence of better forecasting and employing technology. Well, that's it for this episode. Hope you've really enjoyed it. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off and I'll see you next time. Bye for now.
The Chain Reaction Podcast is written, presented and produced by Tony Hines. Hi, I'm Tony Hines. I'm here to tell you about the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. I've been researching and writing about supply chains for over 25 years. I wrote my first book on supply chain strategies in the early 2000s. Each week we have special episodes on particular topics relating to supply chains. Now we have a weekly news roundup every Saturday at 12 noon. All things impacting global supply chains in that week. So come and join us on the Chain Reaction Podcast. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now.